Hello and welcome to the Stinging Fly podcast. My name is Declan Mead. I'm the publisher here at the Stinging Fly. And on this podcast, we ask a writer to choose some work from the Stinging Fly archive to read it and discuss it with us. Today, I'm joined by Cathy Sweeney. Cathy's work has appeared in the Stinging Fly on many occasions since 2011, as well as in the Dublin Review, Egress, Winter Papers, Banshee and The Tangerine. Her stories have been bro- also been broadcast on BBC Radio 4. Her debut collection of, of short fiction, Modern Times, will be published by us in March. Cathy has chosen to read a poem and a piece of flash fiction by Tanya Hirschman. Tanya Hirschman is a poet, writer, teacher and editor based in the north of England. A former science journalist, she has published three collections of short stories and a poetry collection, while her work has been broadcast on BBC Radio 3 and BBC Radio 4. Her writing has appeared several times in the Stingfly over the years. Before we start, I'd just like to say that if you like the podcast, please do share it with your friends or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out. Now, here's Cathy Sweeney reading Finest Feathers by Tanya Hirschman. Fine as feathers. What do you want? He said. The way he looked at me. What do you want? He said it again as if maybe I hadn't heard. Cut short, I said. Pale skin, he said, light brown hair. Cut short, I said, fine as feathers. His face was an old oil painting. His eyes were from some other century. And there I was, like a house with its beams exposed. He put out a hand, and although I understood the transaction, understood that this was part of how it had to be, I winced. He said nothing. Scissors in one hand, his other hand hovered. Fine as feathers, he said. I think you will laugh at me when I tell you about it. I think you'll go Freudian, talk about blades and skin and mutilation, sex and mother issues. A haircut, you say. I felt, I say, I felt it had something more He wasn't the usual, you know? Effeminate, you say, and smirk. You smirk as if you know all this better than I do. I didn't want to use that word, I say, and turn to look through the window into the street because you aren't being nice and I need you to be nice. Because you have a cruelty in you that comes through when what I need is kindness. He raised his scissors and I closed my eyes. As I sat there, I heard a bird and the sound came closer. The bird was singing and the motion of him cutting, of him severing the ends, fitted in with the bird's odd sounds. As if he and the bird were dancing and my hair was dancing with them. Even though my eyes were shut, I saw this bird its great plumage, its red throat. I saw him turn to the bird, still cutting my hair. And then I was outside and looking in at myself, and then I was the bird. You have very little difficulty interpreting the dream. I know you think you sound sympathetic, 
I know you think you sound a great many things. You are full of fear, you say to me. You long for wings, you long for your chains to be cut. You are smug. But who is he? I say, looking at you, looking into you, as if to beg for something more like me, something more familiar. He's just a conduit, you say. What if he's God, I say, and then I wish I hadn't. I want to stuff the words back in. Your look, then, is everything. Your look peels back my skin, and I know we will never make it through this. I was the bird then, and you were in the chair. He looked to me as if he wanted me to say something, to make some sound. I knew what he wanted. I opened my beak and it poured forth, and it came from something so deep inside, a sort of singing speech, and so he cut and cut and cut some more. And then, when he had shorn your head, he moved the scissors closer, closer to your neck, that pale blue vein. And you, looking in the mirror, didn't see. You, admiring, had a wall which kept out all danger. I knew when he turned to me again, that he was asking me, all I had to give was a sign. The tip of the blade, right by your neck, metal on skin. Against joy. In the light they stay silent and still. It is in the dark that they know how to move about, how to crawl and slink. Such creatures they are. Their talents are the manifestations of purpose, maybe, or of adaptation. Who knows? But isn't the world the same? The weather continues hot and everything points to an early harvest. Thieving is their nature. And however much they are called to come to bed, come to sleep, come to sleep, sweet one, in the night they search for gold and treasures, and only once found and stored safely can they, daily, rest. She corners one of them. She sings bad love songs in his ear, and he wishes to resist his nature, just to be and be with her. But they call him, and he gets out of bed, leaves her behind to forage and pilfer with his kind. In his thoughts that night, as he lays hands on goods that he does not possess, is only her hair, and only his idea to tame a bird to light where she lives and watch her while he cannot. When he returns, his stash well hidden, the bed is empty. The bird is gone too, and all that is left for him is to feel the day warmth rise about him and wonder against his nature, against his talent that so prevents his joy. Thanks very much for that, Cathy. Um, Tell me why you chose... uh, to read from Tanya's work today? I chose Tanya's work because it fascinates me when I find 
writers that uh, move between forms. And I was taken to it immediately. Uh, the first thing I read was Fine as Feathers and it's a gripping story. It's one of those stories you can do 360 degrees and you're still not sure where you are. Uh, it offers more with each reading. Um, the beauty of the language in it speaks of somebody who is a poet. And then when I went to the poetry section, I found this poem Against Joy. And again, very abstract, very beautiful in the rhythm and the language. And a poem that leaves you with more questions than answers. And that's something that I like. So I think it's just the blurring of the boundaries between the two forms. Something I think is actually very old rather than very new that attracted me to her. Right. Yeah, because I probably would have introduced both as pieces of flash fiction, perhaps. So I wasn't even sure, you know, I yeah. wasn't aware that <laughs> one we had even classified or she had submitted one as a poem and we had published it as a poem. What yeah. were we doing? <laughs> I, I think I think this is it. Um, I I like the uh, writers that can move between and that don't trouble themselves with yeah. the classification. Um, I think there's there's a, there's a sense that sh there's very great freedom in that movement, and it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, uh, it's the writing that matters. I can see that Finus Feathers has character and relationship and dynamic, um, whereas Against Joy is working a little bit harder on the things we think of as more traditionally poetic, such as uh, rhythm. But both pieces are gripping and have heart and linger and that's all you want. Uh, the classification seems secondary to that. I think a lot of classifications can sometimes reduce a writer, um, particularly things like experimental poetry or not experimental poetry, which seems absurd because to sit down and write, unless you're writing something from Mills and Boone, is experimental. And Wordsworth and Lyrical Ballads describe the poems as an experiment. So this goes back a long way. And I often think of writers like uh, Lawrence or um, Frost, maybe um, Elizabeth Bishop, particularly Raymond Carver, that go between the forms. Um, and many writers, I think, are tormented by the form that doesn't come naturally to them. Uh, Susan Sontag been you know, constantly berating herself for not writing the great novel. Um, so I, th I I think that it's uh, something that many writers play with and the the call sometimes of the form that eludes you is is very powerful. Mm -hmm. And is there in the, you know, you used the word abstract, um, is there in the abstraction and maybe the kind of not quite... There's the, you know, it's not quite clear what the meaning is, particularly of that uh, second piece against Joy. Uh, you know exactly what's happening. I mean, is that something that you appeals to you as a reader? Um, and is does it something? Is it something that worries you as a writer at all? It appeals to me as a reader. Uh, it doesn't worry me at all as a writer. Uh, somebody mentioned a story of mine recently, and in it, the character is a woman and she's in her mid-40s. All this is stated in the story and it says that she has a child with her of about six. And I was asked, was that her child? 
And my answer was, I don't think it is. I think maybe she's the grandmother. And I could see the face looking at me like, well, why don't you know? Uh, but I hadn't, I hadn't felt compelled when I was writing it to work it out exactly. Um, sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. And I, I also love a story that is more explicable. Um, but I do have, I think, a intrinsic attraction to work in any form that you go back to, that you want to come to again. And maybe that changes over time, that you read it differently five years later, or it reads you. Mm -hmm. um, so I like, I like that sense of meanings continually opening up. Yeah, I mean, I was reading recently a profile of a writer called Vivian Gornick. Did you come across that in The New Yorker? But um, she's no. written, I mean, I hadn't heard of her before, but she's written, she wrote a book, let's say 20 years ago, it could have been longer, but um, called Fierce Attachments about books that she had read and the the kind of um, effect they had, these different books had on her. But now she's writing a kind of sequel to that, which is kind of rereading those books and kind of charting how the change happened over time, you know, yeah. in terms of, I mean, you obviously read an awful lot and have done for a long time. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, yeah. Has it been, you know, has, and you're only about, you're just about to publish your first book now. So has, was reading there? Re reading, I mean, I'm definitely a reader more, much more than I'm a writer. It's, you know, it's much more important. Yeah. Um, was I, that, was, were books always there? I'm always books interested. were always there. I mean, writing came to me much, much later. I was yeah. in, into my, well into my 30s. But reading was always there. I mean, that, you know, I, that that was my dream, just to like get into a corner and get a book and, you know, hide with it. And uh, yes, I went on and studied English and taught English and I kind of ended up living a little bit in books. And yeah. even with my writing, uh, I am bringing out with you a collection of short stories. It's 10 years work for a very slim volume of stories because I I think that I read an awful lot and in later years kind of dialogue with what I read and uh, it's like the food yeah. for the writings. So I need an awful lot of food for a tiny bit yeah. of writing. Yeah. And a lot of the work that you've written, I mean, has been published in magazines throughout those last 10 years. And, yeah. um, you know, for a long time, I think you would have said that you weren't even particularly interested in writing a book as such. I mean, yeah. what, were the, what, was the, what were the kind of main driving forces in, in, the, in, in the writing for you of, of these stories? I just felt a tremendous desire to uh, write truer. I was going to say better, but better is not the right word, but uh, truer to to get to it, whatever it is. And that was the driving passion for me, the writing. Yeah. I think, and I really don't know much about it, but it seems to me that writing and publishing are very, very, very different things. And it was the writing. I just fell in love with that space and... Uh, want, wanted to 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 just give give my all to it, um, and yet, the, but at the same time, uh, you cannot underestimate how important it is to somebody who is kind of you know working away in those margins of their own life, devoting a lot of time where they should be you know going to the cinema or <laughs> socialising to writing, 
to be published in the small magazines or, you know, to be published anywhere. And uh, I was listening to uh, Simon Armitage on the radio this morning, just before I came in here. And he said that when he had his very first poem published, um, the magazine sent him a cheque for like two pounds. And he still has the cheque because the surge of feeling he had, he'll never get again. And yeah. I absolutely understood that as he was saying it. It's amusing, but it's true. I remember my very first story being published in The Stinging Fly in 2011. And I think I just walked around like somebody on serious drugs for about a week. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah good, good feeling. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a signpost that says, keep going in this direction. And yeah. and there were times when you, you, did, you do need them. Yeah. You do need them. And can you think of any other signposts that you would have got at that, you know, through those years in terms of... Yeah, uh, it's it's up and down and uh, you, there's 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 times when you you do feel you know maybe I should take up tennis but um <sighs> I think when when Kevin Barry did a podcast of one of my stories again that was a huge huge yeah. moment I I kind of couldn't believe it yeah, that was... um yeah um and I I I got a I got a, an absolute thrill out of it great 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 to hear um and so with the stories, I mean, I suppose um, they, you know, some of them are f more kind of based around like could be fairy tales or fables or read more like the modern, you know, this is where we come up to the title modern times, but um, they read like modern day fables and then others are more kind of regular contemporary stories, perhaps yeah. seem like that. Yeah. Were those, were the, did you write sto stories of different types along, you know, at the same time? Or was that a development in the work? Or how would you think of it? Or how do you... I think it goes in and out. It's probably a little bit uh, dependent on, you know, what I'm reading and where my head is at. Uh, but I don't think it changed in a sort of, you know, easy developmental curve. Right. Uh, one of the things I noticed about, I think, the second last story that I wrote for the collection, which is a story called Blue, is that... Obviously, it's fantastical. There's a woman who wakes up and, you know, her leg is turning blue and the whole world starts turning blue. Yeah. But she's also having an affair and goes shopping for underwear in Marks and Spencers. So I find the clash between reality and absurdity yeah. a very, very interesting yeah. line. Yeah. Because, well, I feel we're kind of living it half the, half the time. Of course, and maybe more more. even more now since... 2016 recent years, I, I I find that my feeling of myself in the world is both real and absurd. Right. Yeah. And let's talk about the writing of a particular story. I mean, how does how does a, how will a story start for you? Um, and how does it, how do you keep going? And then how do you know it's finished? It's quite easy for me to know. If I'm getting a story, it's like getting a tingle. Um, and it usually comes with um, an image, a couple of words. But there's a kind of a space and time thing then that I kind of have to get to a, a notebook pen and ability to get it down. And I my, fa my favourite thing to happen is that it comes out and I get it down in one go. If I don't, I tend to, like, I think I have a really, really, really tiny memory file in my brain because it, they dissolve or dilute quite quickly and then it's it's hard to give up so sometimes I have spent three months <laughs> working
working on a story that I'm unwriting yeah. uh, quicker than I'm writing. But I have some memories. I wrote a story called The Chair, which is in the current issue of The Stinging Fly, on the dark, going to work one day, literally start to finish. And there was very little editing to do on it. That doesn't happen very often, but that is a, a memorable, you know, I, I think I was even standing and I had to like, you know, squash the pen out of the bag and get the notebook because I just, it just, just got the story. Um, I actually going to ask you to read that story because um, you've mentioned it and it's also had a great response in terms of uh, people reading that issue of the magazine, the current issue of the magazine and responding to that story in particular. Um, so I might get you to read that now. The chair. We take it in turns now. First, I sit in the chair and my husband administers the shocks. And then, a week or so later, I administer the shocks and my husband sits in the chair. Other couples have their own way of doing things, but this is what suits us. When it is my turn to sit in the chair, I am almost relieved. In the days leading up to it, I become irritable, angry, even on occasion experiencing violent ideations. Often, during this period, I think of leaving my husband, of breaking everything. But when the time comes to sit in the chair, I do so without protestation. A sensation of release and expanse overtakes me, as though I am swimming effortlessly in a vast blue ocean, obeying laws of nature that are larger than me, larger than the universe. It is a different story when it is my turn to administer the shocks to my husband. In the days leading up to that, I am filled with intense feelings of tenderness for him, or not so much for him as for the idea of husband. He becomes alive to me in a way that usually only happens when a person has died. Often, during this period, I find myself kissing my husband's forehead and the tips of his fingers, and when I leave the house, wearing a vest of his under my clothes. But when the time comes to administer the shocks, sorry, I think I said administer. <laughs> Can I start that sentence again? <clears throat> but when the time comes to administer the shocks, a red hot fire erupts in me, flowing through me like lava and annihilating any feelings of tenderness. Afterwards, I am calm, even, dare I say it, content. In between times, my husband and I do the usual things. Sorry, Mr. Word. In between times, my husband and I do all the usual things. Divide the chores, go to work, come home from work, divide the childcare, go to see a movie, order pizza on Friday nights, plan holidays, talk about finance and going to the gym more often, time running always that bit faster than we would like. But our marriage wasn't always so easy. In the early years, it was mostly me sitting in the chair and my husband administering the shocks. And then, after the babies were born, it was mostly my husband in the chair and me administering the shocks. It takes time to establish a pattern that works for both people in a relationship. I have heard of couples abandoning the chair completely. It's all the rage in some circles. Live and let live, I say. But I cannot imagine a marriage working without the chair. I mean, where would the anger go? How would you both remember week to week 
day-to-day what love is. Whenever things reach a low point, perhaps my husband has forgotten to do the dishes or I have been fantasising about having sex with a colleague, I think about one time, a few years ago, when my husband was in the chair. I had just administered the last shock and was about... Sorry. I was... (laughs) getting giddy now. I had just administered the last shock and was about to untie the restraints when I noticed the thinnest trickle of blood coming from his ear. Things like that aren't meant to happen, of course, but nothing is perfect, not even the chair. With my finger, I traced the thin line of blood from ear to jawline and then, absently, put my finger in my mouth and tasted all the beauty and pain of the world that has ever existed from beginning to end, in one burst of metallic cherries. You don't forget a thing like that. So this came to you on the dart and you start writing it, is that right? And did you, what what happened when you got off the dart? I had managed, it was a journey from Bray to town, so it takes 40 odd minutes. So that was plenty of time for the story because (laughs) my stories are very short. It was very scribbly. Obviously, I edited it later, but there wasn't a huge amount to do. Yeah. It it just, that's just a particularly memorable moment of the story coming to me yeah. and I, I I have no idea where it came from but I yeah. just I just I got the first line and the rest of it just came out yeah I mean I think with um when writing is concise and very you know and short and be that poems or very or short stories it demands of the writer that they you know are precise and you know concentrate and you know um, nothing can be wasted and then it also signals to the reader that they kind of have to you know this that concentration is going to be required of them yeah um, and I you know people say that sometimes this scares people off um, and I think myself you know looking at something that you know flash fiction um, I'm kind of I want it to be great so that it doesn't disappoint me um, or, you know, I have higher expectations of what the writer will be setting out to do. Or do you come to it in the same way or, or uh, I'd, I'd, also with poetry? Or I'd never thought about that with flash fiction. And I'm glad because that sounds quite scary. <laughs> <laughs> I, I totally understand that in relation to poetry. I, I just hadn't thought that somebody might have a demanding standard when reading flash fiction. But certainly when you come to a poem on a page, you can't, there is no room. There's no room for a spare comma. Spare. Yeah. You, you can you can drop a poem yeah. very very quickly, um, and that that's why I suppose why why it is you know such such an exacting form. I felt with Tanya Hirschman uh, that particularly in the in the story now, finest feathers, that uh, she's 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 playful. Uh, she's using a lot of poetic techniques, the the bird and the plumage and the colours and the beautiful sound effects, but there's real heart in it. Yeah. There's some devastating lines. I need you to be nice. Yeah. I found that so yeah, devastating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So simple and so true. Yeah. And also we will never make it through this. Yeah. I 
was amazed that she got all that in yes, in yeah, in yeah. in less than two pages. Yeah, uh, and the 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 rhythm of it uh, makes it slightly trance like. So you do enter into her world with yeah, ease, yeah, with ease, yeah. uh, like swimming underwater. You're just there. You'll, yeah. you'll come up again the other end of the pool. But yeah. when you're in the story, you're in it. And yeah. I like that sensation. Yeah. Um, and in terms of your reading, I mean, like how does that fit into your reading generally? That type of, this type of work? I mean, is that work you seek out when you're when you're in a bookshop, or let's say, or I I have an extremely um, magpie way of reading. Right. My favourite thing to read is something someone else is reading. <laughs> <laughs> I go around the house stealing <laughs> books that other people are reading. I I love to not pick the book um, and just have it fall into my lap and. Uh, begin a conversation with it the way you might a stranger on a train and hope that you won't get that sensation two stops in of how long are we going to be stuck on this train together. And I sometimes give up uh, reading books and I sometimes graze too much. Yeah. I like nonfiction. Um, as I have a son who's 20 who works in the bookshop. That's an extremely handy thing to have yeah. because he reads a lot of history um, and a lot of politics and I I just love uh, nipping into what he's reading and uh, having the chats about it. I would read a variety. Yeah. So sometimes you're, you know, you're attracted, maybe you want to read a lot of uh, short stories and sometimes you can't bear to read them. Yeah. <laughs> so it goes in and out. Right. And is there anything you've kind of said well, either anything that you've said, well, no, I'm not reading anything like that ever again, that again now, or or stuff that you've grown into that you wouldn't have read before. That you know, how has that changed? Or I just keep discovering more. I think I think that's it. That I'm always amazed at how little I've read when it comes yeah. down to it. There's yeah. an awful lot of books, and. Recently, I read a story by an Irish writer called, and I don't have Irish, so I might mispronounce, but Martino Coyne, uh, The Hair Lip, in a book of translated short stories. And I, I felt, how did I not know yeah. this story was there? Uh, because I found it tremendous, tremendous. Yeah. And, and when that happens, you know, you, you, it's, you're going around a bit like we talked about, if, if, if a magazine accepts your story, you're going around a bit of a daze for a few days. Yeah. I have a slightly weird habit of if I'm reading something I really like, I like to carry it around in my bag as if it's a talisman against something. I don't know what. Um, and I like to reread yeah. it. So th that happens. And that, as, I, as I say, it's it's stunning. I recently was reading Annie or No, and I was amazed that she sort of opens up a space that I hadn't really even considered that writing on two level, two levels, a, a bit like maybe what you were talking about with the piece in The New Yorker. She was writing about uh, an experience of having an abortion, uh, but she was writing about it in such a profound way, the person that was her then and the yeah. person that is her now, without there being 
any contradiction between the two yeah. and yet the two worlds coexisting. And I, I found that very moving. Yeah, yeah. I've heard you say that, um, you know, in terms of how you view your own work, that you kind of view it as being not part of Irish writing necessarily or, you know, that you... Because you were born outside the country, isn't that right? Or is that I, you I, were I was born here, born. Uh, but I did live outside the country as a child. But I, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. Once, you know, once you start down that road, it becomes, I, I really don't. Well, no, it's, I suppose it's more about the style and whether that, yeah. you know. Um, I did. I think I just did feel. That it didn't fit in, maybe. I didn't think about. That, but yeah. I think I just didn't, I didn't think about writing when I was you know, I studied English, I went through my 20s and sure. others. It never occurred to me to write. And I think that might be a little bit that I I saw the tradition as something that I there was, wasn't was an easy access point. Right, yeah. Okay. So thank you very much, Cathy. Thank you, Declan. So that's all we have time for this month. Cathy Sweeney's Modern Times will be in all good bookshops from March 19th. The launch of the book is in Books Upstairs on March 19th at 6pm. All are welcome. Stingfly subscribers can access the full 20-year-plus archive of the magazine on the website. If you're not a subscriber, go to stingfly.org to sign up. This podcast was presented by me, Declan Mead, produced by Ian Mullaney and made possible through support from the Arts Council. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again soon.